than white men. Liabilities lower your net worth. The more assets you have, the higher your net worth. Women need to know that they have power as well. Net worth can be calculated with the balance sheet. Saving into fixed expense. Credit score directly affects the liabilities we may get. Discrimination is every reason to close a bank. I do this because black women and black men should know that they can make a difference. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Nathan Rubin and I'm joined today by Chloe McKenzie from Black Femme. Hey Chloe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, we're really excited to have you on because we think you are doing incredible work with your organization. So I wanna turn it over to you to talk through um, who you are and what you do. So go ahead and take it away. All right, cool. So um, my name is Chloe McKenzie, and I'm the founder and CEO of Black Femme Inc. Um, prior to starting my organization, I was actually a trader on Wall Street. What I did is I touched kind of the average American who takes out some form of debt. Um, I traded it. So I traded everything from mortgages to student loan debt, car loans, credit card debt, um, and so that despite that that was very intellectually stimulating, you can imagine the types of, I don't know, kind of ethical dilemmas that I feel like I was faced on a day to day basis. Um, and then kind of said to myself, well, I feel as though I'm really making money off of people's inability to pay their debt obligations. So I need to do something that will actually help feed my soul a little bit. And so I became a financial counselor at a homeless shelter. Um, and from there said, this is exactly what I want to do. I felt like there are so many secrets around wealth building that shouldn't be secret. And um, I ended up starting Black Femme, and our mission is to provide opportunities for women and girls of color to build and sustain wealth. And we particularly focus on this demographic, um, being that I'm a woman of color, we are more systematically disadvantaged from an economic, beyond that, socially, politically, et cetera, but certainly an economic standpoint. So. Really, the name comes from um, Black feminist tradition, which says that if you liberate those who are situated at the bottom of society, then we're necessarily liberating everybody. So diving a little bit more into the work that Black Femme actually does, I know just from our past conversations that you are very active in the school systems. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the curriculum that you've designed and how you engage you know, kids even as young as elementary school? Yeah, absolutely. So. I think it's best to start from where the problem is centered. So obviously we have this growing wealth gap, which is really unfortunate. So that's why I started Black Femme. And then starting to understand what is the problem that I'm seeking to solve is centered around these three fundamental issues with financial literacy curriculum. So the first is that financial literacy curriculum usually is standardized which means that we're probably going to be excluding students with learning disabilities and learning differences, which they deserve to learn about finance too. Um, secondly, um, this is a very white male dominated space as well, where they write financial literacy curriculum and they believe that kids can only learn how to manage their money through their allowance, um, which necessarily excludes all of the low income students um, who need to learn about building wealth, etc. Because they don't even get an allowance. Exactly. They don't even get an allowance. Or sometimes they'll say, oh, well, you should go mow the lawn to get money. And they're like, well, what if they don't? 
have a backyard or a front yard um, and they live in public housing. What do you do? So that doesn't resonate with them. And then the final piece is really these people um, create curriculum that they drop it off. It's for the students and then they leave. Whereas we can't assume that teachers are financially literate. So why aren't we training them? And then from there, um, how do administrators include their instructional goals? So this is all to say that those three fundamental problems is what our curriculum solves. So we customize our curriculum, not just school by school, but classroom by classroom. So we're able to create wealth and financial literacy curriculum that um, serves all populations from English language learners to special education students to the, those on the autism spectrum and then the general population. Um, from there, we make it culturally responsive, which is really the biggest piece that it's not enough to just teach you to save just to save. That's actually not the point. We teach everything from a wealth perspective, which says even regardless of your background, you can be wealthy. And it's really just understanding that you need to have more assets than liabilities. And we also should teach the kids from a social justice perspective by saying, this is how financial institutions among other institutions in the American system have systematically exploited um, certain communities that our students belong to. And so we teach them these things so that they feel empowered to make it, make it end. And then the final piece is the whole community approach, which is, we train teachers to be better financial educators. We have a simultaneous parent program so that this education continues at home. And then we kind of occupy spaces um, and sit in more of an ed consultant capacity um, for our school district leaders, et cetera, to make sure that they feel as though we're infusing some of the larger goals and improvement frameworks into our curriculum. So all that sounds awesome, but let's say practically speaking, financial literacy, it's not the most engaging topic traditionally speaking. So how do you take that curriculum, that course content, and then go to a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old and then actually implement it and bring it to life for them? Because I think you guys do a really great job of it, but I want you to talk through what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. And let's even challenge that because, I mean, that sounds challenging enough, but to even make it more challenging, let's talk about our four and five-year-olds. Um, who may not even know how to read or count, right? Um, Do you guys work that young with yes, kids that we, young? Yes, as young as three. So we're in wow. 3K all the way to 12th grade. Yeah, so I think some of the big things that we start with is framing the problem for our students. So what really gets the students engaged, and this is, you know, obviously we see it right now, unfortunately, with, um, with the mass shooting that happened in Florida, that students actually have ideas and... Uh, and, and mindsets around certain topics that would otherwise people think that they're not included in. And so we actually just leverage that. Um, so the first thing is framing the problem of wealth inequality for these communities. We start that with every single grade, including our three and four year olds, but obviously making sure we pay attention to the social emotional side of things. But getting students to see that, okay, well, right now, where do you think, um, who are the wealthiest individuals? And let's actually talk about identity politics. And let's talk about some of these things that you're seeing at home that your mom might be struggling with XYZ things that relates to finance. Um, and even though that's really heavy, it gets students to engage with our curriculum in a more authentic way. We then kind of use that um, and we get teachers to kind of teach the concepts but through real world application and then we go into the investigation so this is the most exciting part for our kids we kind of say okay cool we taught you how to build a balance sheet now pretend to be an investment advisor or a financial planner and actually build this balance sheet for barack obama and they're like wait what in the world and so we get students to understand that 
they're actually not learning rocket science, which is actually the one thing that I do want to mention. A lot of people say, well, this, there's no way you can teach a four-year-old how to, uh, I don't know, raise their credit score or something. And I'm thinking to myself, well, we actually teach molecular chemistry, H2O, things like that in second grade, but you're telling me that we can't teach kids about finance. And so the way that we do it is the investigations are the pieces where we take the concepts that we've taught them in kind of an engaging way from a social justice and culturally responsive perspective. And then we actually throw them into adulthood. Whether they're five years old or 15, we say, we'd rather you make a $20,000 mistake now than in real life. And so we provide them with these opportunities to become a loan officer and decide if they're actually employing discriminatory lending practices, for example. Um, we have them become members of Congress and pass budgets, um, which I believe our kids are doing a much better job of, if I do say so myself. It's probably not hard to do, to be no, honest. No, definitely not. <laughs> That's awesome. So something that you said that was really interesting was how do you um, teach a five-year-old or a seven-year-old the intricacies of having a credit score and its impact on their ability to take out loans in the future? So, so how do you kind of reconcile those concepts with things that they do like coming to school every day or turning in their homework? Because my understanding is that there is a connection to how you've incorporated that into your curriculum. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So this is actually the first step in what we call our two-step implementation process. We have three kind of overarching programs that we can provide to schools, but the two biggest are our Kids Credit Bureau and our Classroom Integration Program. The Classroom Integration Program is kind of what I described before, which is the curriculum that we write for schools that gets implemented up to five days a week, which is incredibly radical. Um, but the Kids Credit Bureau is even, it's our first step, but it's also really exciting. So to your point is, our kids watch TV. So that's actually the easiest part because we can create these connections. If you, It is so fun to watch a five-year-old reenact a Credit Karma commercial. I would totally send you some videos or you all can check our, our Instagrams and things like that um, if you want to be able to see this. But they get to be, um, to understand that their parents or on TV or wherever are talking about what, the, what these credit scores are. They realize it's somehow linked to something with paying bills. Um, and so we get them to understand that your credit score is really a grade, if you will, about how trustworthy you are as a borrower of money. And so we say to them, well, you actually get a credit score of your own and it's linked to school. Instead of it being to paying your bills on time like adults, your credit score is going to be linked to homework completion, attendance, and tardies. Um, and so that is the essence of the Kids Credit Bureau. What gets really exciting about this is students are now able to see that they're no longer reduced to their grades. Oh, I'm a good kid or a bad kid. We, we don't believe in that type of nomenclature. What we see is students are actually able to see that their academic and behavioral choices has some type of an effect on their financial trajectory. So it's a new way of, again, reframing this mindset around what school can actually do for you. Now they're beat over the head every day, you know, go to school, get good grades, et cetera. But realizing that if they kind of look to some of their elders, maybe their older siblings, that that's actually not enough. That if we really actually understand that traditional education coupled with a, a really comprehensive financial education, that's actually what's gonna prepare them. And so we were able to see that our students get really engaged with this, particularly our kindergartner and first graders. And I think the problem that we're now starting to see is that we have to teach etiquette because now they're like, hi, what's your name? What's your credit score to adults? And we're like, okay, it gets a little <laughs> bit more intimate than that, so. Kids say the darndest things, huh? Yeah, definitely. 
Well, so, so just to break it down even more for our listeners, when you say it's tied to attendance or, or homework completion, effectively, these kids have a running credit score over the course of the year. And if they have perfect attendance and they have perfect homework completion rates, they'll have a perfect credit score. Is that correct? That is correct. And then are they able to redeem that credit score for anything? They are. So again, one of the big things that uh, is kind of a bigger statement about allowances, et cetera, is we give students what we call their take-home salaries, but you can only access that take-home salary when you reach a perk threshold, which is the credit score of a 700. By the way, our credit score system is built just like the real one. So the lowest being a 300, the highest being an 850. Um, and so what students are able to do is if as long as they do their homework every day, they show up to school, and they come to school on time, their credit score inevitably is going to go up, just like paying your bills on time. Um, from there, once you reach a 700, you'll now have access to your take-home salary. Your take-home salary is, let's call it a fake currency. So let's say I went to PS96, we might call them PS96 dollars. That's not probably the sexiest title, but for this, for this example, that's what we can call it. Um, and so students can actually buy experiences with this money uh, or this fake money, I should say. So they can buy experiences like uh, lunch with your favorite teacher, the probably the most exciting one that students actually have to save for. So again, it kind of brings in some of these other principles they're learning um, is principle for the day. That's a really, really big one. Um, but from there, once we get into the Kids Credit Bureau and the students really understand what's going on, um, we actually see very big moves in the way that students are completing their homework, coming to school. So once we see that kind of happening across the school culture, what we then do is that we actually open up the Kids Credit Bureau to become an investment bank where students can, instead of saving the money that they're earning for their take-home salaries, they can actually invest it so they can you know, earn a return. It's linked to the S&P 500, but you can imagine that, again, what we're doing is we're just taking things that happen in real life and applying it so that it makes sense for a student. You've effectively built this little mini economy yes. within the school system. Exactly, and we've also created our mini political system as well because the student council of each of our schools actually regulates the bank. Wow, that I mean, this is incredible. And if I had this as a student, I think I would have really enjoyed school and I probably would have turned in all of my homework. Um, you know, thinking back to some of these complicated concepts, uh, a lot of it didn't start to click for me until I graduated high school and I was taking out student loans of my own and realizing what the interest rate and what the repayment term would be um, and then watching the stock market on my own. Um, it, it's really incredible the work that you're doing because I think outside of even low socioeconomic areas, people just don't have the financial literacy that they need. Yeah, that's, it's, that's spot on. I mean, I think the big thing that is a huge testament is every single adult I talk to is like, man, I wish I had this. And most people are thinking, man, I wish I had this in high school. So you can imagine what we're doing when we're teaching this to kindergartners, to pre-K students, um, that imagine when they turn 18 years old, how much financial literacy they've built for themselves. Because again, since we don't believe in or lowering our intellectual standards, we're still teaching concepts that wealth managers teach their own clients. So there's kind of this terrible um, polarity between the financial literacy that exists in our, in our country. Either you have none because nobody taught it to you. And that's typically among the lower socioeconomic middle income type socioeconomic backgrounds. Or it's like, I am so wealthy or so rich because, and I don't have to worry about it because I just, you know, delegate that to my advisor, right? So 
um, there is kind of this serious resource deficiency. And the problem is, of course, if you're not privileged enough to be able to delegate it away, then um, that's actually how I believe some of this wealth inequality is beginning to per is persisting. Um, and the reason why we've kind of targeted schools, which I really didn't think was going to happen originally, is because I fundamentally don't believe that traditional education is enough to be able to kind of right the wrongs of the, the systems of oppression that exist in our country. Um, a lot of people kind of push up against our, our disruptive model slightly because, you know, everybody has their critiques of capitalism. And I totally get that. I believe that we're sitting at this really nice tension between um, subscribing to traditional capitalistic tendencies, but also helping subvert some of that, right? So the idea behind it is that we're getting our kids to understand that, yes, we have to operate under this system that was not built for us. But if we're given the tools to actually play the game, you can imagine how that starts to change some of the tides within the system itself. And speaking of kind of operating within the, the capitalist uh, system that we have, um, Black Femme also does some work in the political system that we have. Is that right? There is an element of advocacy work that you all do? Yes. Um, it's funny that I like mentioning it that too. My fiance who sits on our board as a lawyer, he'd be like, don't say political. But let's be real. Anything that women of color do in this country is going to be politicized and therefore everything that we do is political, which I'm okay with. Um, but to that point, yes. So, so we have the, what we just described is everything that we're doing in um, our school system. So what we call a black femme at school. We have another brand that we operate called Black Femme Advocacy, and these are honestly probably some of the most radical ideas that I kind of think of or my team thinks of that we could try to make happen. Um, and so recently we were funded by the, um, the Fund for Girls and Young Women of Color through the New York Women's Foundation to launch a program called the Junior Equity Fund. And so what, what we want to think about is this. A lot of people think that our only power in terms of the power of our dollars is to divest, right? So we think of um, H&M and that terrible sweatshirt and, and a lot of people stop shopping at H&M, right? Or fossil fuels. Exactly, exactly. Um, yes, no DA uh, and, or the Dakota Access Pipeline, et cetera. So that's actually one place. So there's this interesting dynamic that you toggle between consumption and divestment, right? So we're always going to do that. We're always having to pay for things, but we also can choose not to pay for things. And that can hurt the pockets of these corporations. But what we don't think about, and it's probably because we have never been taught how to invest, is actually how we can use investment as a way of infiltrating systems. So when you become a shareholder of a company, let's use Nike as a great example, particularly for communities of color. Communities of color love consuming a Nike. Um, they have this huge hold on, let's call them Jordans or whatever else you, they want to purchase from that particular company. What we don't see is these companies responding by reinvesting some of that into the communities themselves. Um, so what we've done is we've, and really thinking about this from a wealth perspective, right? We've bought shoes that are depreciable assets. That means their value goes down as soon as we wear them. And we're not actually getting anything in return from those companies. That's a problem. Um, I think we all know it, but we don't know how we can change that. Well, become a shareholder. So these Jordans cost 200, 250 bucks. Whereas a share, which is a percentage ownership of Nike, only costs $52. If I'm, I haven't checked the ticker today, but um, it actually only costs $52 to become an owner of Nike. And that's really just purchasing a stock in this company. 
What's cool about that is not only do you become an owner, which means that you're going to be able to share some of the profits that these companies are making, but beyond that, you get rights as a shareholder, new rights that um, you otherwise wouldn't have just by being um, a citizen or um, of the United States or beyond that. So what you get to do is you get to vote on who runs the company. So I, I use this really terrible analogy because I guess nobody watches horse racing. Neither do I. But this is the only one that I could kind of think of. If you think about there's three really important parties in kind of the horse racing sphere, right? You have the owner of the horse and that person selects the trainer who trains the horse and that trainer usually picks the jockey, right? The, the person who rides the horse. So <laughs> the trainer of the horse is actually the board of directors. Board of directors then selects the CEOs, the CFOs, who's, who are the jockeys, right? And so the idea behind this is actually who has the power, the source of all of this power is the owner of that horse, AKA the shareholders of the company. And so the, the kind of crazy idea that I came up, with, came up with was, wouldn't it be interesting if every single, let's call it woman or person of color, or maybe together women and per persons of color, um, purchased one share of Nike. You can imagine that we would have a pretty significant stake in Nike and we would then we could vote off the entire board and put in people who are actually representative of the communities that consume in that company. So it's a pretty crazy idea, but we were able to get funded and now we're actually going to be giving um, black and brown girls, cisgender, transgender and gender nonconforming people in New York City capital to literally go in and participate in an activist investor initiative to try to actually shake up some of these corporations. I think that's a wonderful idea. And I think even on the flip side, corporations need to understand that if they're making a profit in a specific city, state, or even country, they have a corporate responsibility to give back to those communities so mm -hmm. that it's not just an exploitation. They're just not reaping the benefits of working there. Mm -hmm. um, they, they really need to be active participants. And I think that corporate citizenship, that corporate responsibility is something that I hope my generation, our generation is really gonna start to put into place, not just as a nice to have, but as a must to have. If you operate in our jurisdiction and you turn a profit, you have an obligation to take care of not only your workers, but the community itself. Otherwise, it's bad for you, it's bad for us, and, and, and we need to work together to be sustainable. Exactly, and I think the bigger thing there is how can we do that if the people who sit on these boards don't come from our communities? I mean, Nike is a great example that they are all white. I believe there's only one person on the board who's a person of color. There are two women out of the entire board. So yeah, right, if we're, if we're really thinking that they're going to be actually investing back into these you know, low-income communities of color, uh, which it's kind of laughable to think that that's something that they actually think that they would ever do and if they're even considering. I think what's even more confusing is there are other CEOs of these major corporations that sit on these boards. So the um, director of the subcommittee of executive compensation, so they set the CEO's salary of Nike, is actually Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple. So it's, it's super interesting how there's these kind of dynamics, which I would probably consider conflicts of interest that, that exist. But I think what's fundamentally behind this is again, the shareholders voted for these people to be on the board in the first place. So what I'm thinking there is there's actually more room for us to leverage power that exists. And one of the great things about investing, which you know, God only knows what Trump is gonna do with his team, but at least for right now, 
it's one of the few places where they actually can't screw us over with kind of all of this ridiculous political crap. It's a, it's a free market, it's open. So we can just go buy a share of a company and we now become a shareholder and now we have rights. Um, and this is true whether you are from a different country or not. You can invest in things that, you know, in corporations that are abroad or here, and you have those rights. So if you think about community organizing, we've now just actually, we've lowered um, the, the community, or we've actually targeted the community that we're trying to work with, but you become a shareholder. You can community organize among the shareholder community to vote um, up to quarterly. So we don't have to wait every two and four years for you know these larger election cycles. We actually could start changing the political atmosphere now, but doing so through investing. And hey, we can potentially make some money out of it if these companies continue to turn a profit. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic that I want us to think about that this actually is a political act in and of itself that we can start community organizing in the shareholder communities as soon as we become a shareholder. And so a lot of think uh, people I think also think you need a whole bunch of capital to start investing. It's actually not true. Think about Staples. I mean, Staples is trading at $15. Um, now, again, the one thing I wanna mention is obviously we wanna make sure that these fit your own risk tolerance and profile and all of that stuff. But I think that's part of the reason why we focus so much on making sure that our students understand how to invest. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be clear, we're not recommending that people go out and buy Nike stock or, or, or Staples stock. But to your point, Correct. The, 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 the price of a share on the open market is relatively affordable if you're interested in just buying a couple shares here or there. But typically, when you look at the large activist investors, I mean, they're picking up hundreds of thousands of shares mm -hmm. um, in, in really kind of massive amounts of money. Um, but but going back to, to Black Femme here, so you mentioned Black Femme at school, you mentioned Black Femme um, advocacy. Are there any other pillars that, that you all operate in? Yes, um, so our other kind of big pillar is Black Femme in-house, and these are completely free programs um, for women and girls of color across um, New York City. Um, and we host monthly sessions, sometimes more, but typically monthly sessions where we are teaching these types of things. It's just a way to, to get financial resources, education, and services um, provided to the most disadvantaged um, people across all five boroughs. Um, one of the big things that's really important to me that you'll see is, again, some of these other financial literacy orgs actually charge people um, and I totally understand from a business perspective why you would need to do that, but my big thing is our programs have got to be free for the constituencies that we serve. So whereas, yes, our, some of our school districts are paying us for the operating costs of our programs, the families themselves, the people who are actually receiving these services are not paying a dime. And I think that that's really important. Um, and it's the same thing for our in-house and our advocacy programs as well. And just to be clear, Black Femme is a nonprofit and you are somewhat reliant upon volunteers and donations. So um, how can people learn more about you? How can they learn more about your organization and get more involved if they want to? Yes, absolutely. One of the biggest ways that we're really able to increase our impact and our impact footprint has been from people who have gotten involved, whether it be from a donor standpoint or for volunteering. Um, the best place to go is our website, blackfem.org, black like the color, F-E-M, like feminist.org. Um, and that's where you can really explore all of our program offerings um, sign up to become a volunteer and really more importantly donate. I think 
one of the the best things that has happened, particularly at the end of 2017, um, we kind of obviously saw a massive surge in people who want to get involved to kind of change the tides of, of what America hopefully is not becoming, um, but is um, is the fact that we had a lot of people adopt schools. So we're, you know, we thought we would always be in New York City, but, you know, we're working in Southside Chicago, we're in Detroit public schools, DC public schools, and it's because people have said, well, this kid's credit bureau thing should be in low-income communities color else, uh, communities of color elsewhere. And so um, if you're interested in adopting a school to get the kid's credit bureau program, you can find that on our website as well. But um, donations, our average donation side, very Bernie Sanders style, is $27. Um, we have a really great um, population of people who are recurring donors at the $10 a month level. Um, and so you can do that on our website as well. And, and that actually goes to serve um, actually one girl. So if, you, for, if you're $10 a month, you're actually adopting 12 girls to go through our programs because it's, that's about the cost for every in-house program. Awesome. Chloe, thank you so much. When we first connected, I think it was a little bit over a year ago, um, you had all these great plans and now it's so fun to, to look back over the last year and see how you guys have grown and scaled and all the great work that you're doing. So thank you so much for, for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. My name is Nathan Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Nathan H. Rubin. Uh, check out the Millennial Politics website, millennialpolitics.co. Subscribe to our newsletter. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Check out our merchandise in our store and stay tuned for our next episode.